0: back out this evening, and I don't know if we have visitors. If you are visiting with us, we're glad you're here. We want you to come back. We had, as a matter of fact, uh, several visitors this morning, and I know we had a couple uh, at least that were here for the first time ever, so that's great. I I will encourage you, and I'll just take a moment a sidebar here. If you notice someone is visiting, you notice especially they've not been here before, people appreciate you reaching out. I know a lot of people here do that. But I just encourage everyone that wants to get involved in that and welcoming people uh, to do so. And uh, I know one lady was very impressed with the service this morning. I think she kind of happened in here, but that's okay too. <laughs> and uh, really enjoyed herself uh, being here and enjoyed the service, appreciated it. So uh, take notice when people, people are visiting with us. Tonight we're going to go back to looking at the Apostle Peter. You may go ahead and open your Bibles. To uh, John chapter 6. The bulk of the lesson, I intend for at least about two-thirds of it, if uh, not a little more than that, to be spent in John 6 exclusively, so uh, it'll be easy to follow along in the lesson. We're looking at the Apostle Peter, in, and uh, I really, as I was preparing this, and began through several months ago, actually, I um, I started off with a working title of the real Peter. And I think I mentioned that before. It's not that we don't ever talk about Peter the way he really is. But I just wanted to kind of get a complete view by looking at snapshot pictures. And and I know that's in itself a little contradictory. But I think if we lift these stories out, but if we look at them all together, uh, it really does give us a good picture of who this person is. Peter becomes one of those people that a lot of us can identify with probably because he is no superman, no superhero in that sense, uh, faultless individual, but he has his faults. And yet in tonight's story, as we look at John 6, we see the Apostle Peter in one of his finest moments. Um, because Peter really does love Jesus, and as this three and a half years or so unfolds, we watch the Apostle Peter grow closer in friendship. To Jesus, And they become very close friends, and that's evident, and we will look at that down the line and the reason why I would say that and make that statement. But I believe you can see it here in John 6. John 6 and the feeding of the 5,000, if you probably have a heading on your, uh, in your Bibles to that effect, um, this is the only miracle, the only thing you will find common to all four gospel accounts unless you want to look at the resurrection, and, uh, and we would certainly account that as miraculous. But as far as the miracles Jesus did during his public ministry, if I'm not mistaken, this is the only one that's common to all four, four accounts. It's one of my favorite stories. It's one of those miracles, and I guess for all of us there are those things, but this one stands out to me as just spectacular. That there, If I saw this, and if, if I could go back in time and watch something happen, I think even more than the dividing of the Red Sea, I'd love to watch this. And and, I, and and there are reasons for that I won't get into, but it's an amazing story. But beyond the story and beyond being impressed with the spectacular view of what Jesus does, there is an underlying teaching that only occurs really in John 6 that I appreciate even more, that I love even more. It's very deep as far as Jesus' teaching is concerned, And uh, it has its effects. And so if we look at this, and let me just take a moment to set it up contextually. This is in the midst of some very intense discussions. If you notice on your outline, I chose chapter 5 and just three or four verses here. Begin reading with me in chapter 5, verse 39. But you can get the tone of what's going on here. Where Jesus would say to the Jews, search the scriptures. For in them... You think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. And you shall not come to me that you might have life. And yes, you heard that correctly. Jesus said, you will not come to me that you may have life. I receive not honor from men, verse 41. And there's a hidden message there, so to speak. You do, I don't. Verse 42, but I know you, that you have not the love of God in you. I am come in my Father's name, and you receive me not. If another had come in his own name, you would receive him. That's the tone, and it really very well sets the tone for what's about to happen and the teaching Jesus is about to do. It's in this context when many Jews are gathering for the Passover. And you can see, and Wes taught about this on Thursday night at Wendy's, the Passover is drawing close. And if you know... The commandment, Deuteronomy 16, for example, these Jews have to start migrating. The further away they live, the earlier they have to start. But they've got to be in Jerusalem during the week of the Passover, and they've got to observe that feast there. So as it's drawing closer, and I realize this is not down in Jerusalem, but you can see the migration coming, and it all kind of funnels in through Galilee down into Jerusalem. And are just crowds of people. And the Bible tells us, if you'll notice, if you'll drop down to chapter 6, and I'll start reading in verse 2, a great multitude followed him because they saw his miracles that he did on them that were diseased. Now Jesus separates himself, but if you'll look down in verse 5, when Jesus lifted up his eyes, he saw a great company come unto him. And that's when he begins to question Philip. But there's a lot of people, just crowds of people, great multitude of people. Now, he tests his disciples. He's drawn away, separated from the crowds with just the disciples. And he tests them by directing a question at Philip. And i said that because I believe that's really what's going on. They're all in earshot of this. He singles Philip out. There's been all kinds of speculation about that, and I won't speculate about it. But he singles him out, and yet it's within earshot of all of them. And if you notice what he does, he asks Philip... And again, verse 5, where are we going to buy bread that these may eat? I mean, let alone the cost of it for thousands of people. Where are we going to get a supply like that on short notice to feed thousands of people? Well, Philip comes back to him, and you'll notice verse 6, this was the testing to prove him. For he himself knew already what he was going to do. Now, that's interesting. But Philip does answer back. And basically what Philip says, and I'll paraphrase, you know, I don't know, I don't have a clue, we might say today, but there is a little boy, and he's got a lunch, you know, he's packed a sack lunch, so to speak. And he's got a couple of fish and some rolls, we would call them today. But, but what is that in view of thousands of people? And that's basically the answer he gives back, and Jesus immediately then, if you'll notice, beginning about Old oh, verse uh, 10... He said, make the men sit down, and if we put the different accounts together, and I'm not going to go outside this one, but especially Mark's account, for example, he had the apostles arrange these thousands of people by ranks, almost in a military fashion, but he had them sit down in orderly ranks, and there's a reason for that, especially the collection of the food that's going to come afterwards. And you know the story here. I don't know exactly how it happened. I don't guess anyone does. But Jesus does take the little sack lunch, which doesn't amount to hardly anything, enough to feed one little boy, and he thanks God for it. And then he begins to divide it. And I've pictured it for all these years in my head, whether right or wrong, that he just kind of picks up a piece of fish and starts tearing, you know, tearing meat off of it. Or a piece of bread, a little roll, and just starts tearing chunks out of it like some of us might do. When we're eating a roll, we tear a little chunk, throw it in our mouth until we finish the roll. A lot of people eat it that way. But I picture him just tearing it, but it won't stop. He just keeps tearing and tearing and tearing and tearing and tearing and tearing and tearing. And he's showing you, as the miracles in John do, that he is the creator. He is the one with the power to create. And if you were there Wednesday night, and several of you were, Wes was talking about this. He is the creator. He is the one that has the power. And he's demonstrating it here. You have no question, once you see this, of his creative ability. I mean, nobody can do that. You, you, it would be hard-pressed to even have a magic trick where you took a roll or a little piece of fish, maybe something similar to a sardine, And you just kept tearing strips of food off of it, and it won't quit. But that's what Jesus does. And they pass it out, and the Bible tells us clearly they all eat their fill. And then Jesus has them gather up the fragments. And that really impresses the human mind with the miracle. Because once thousands of people, and incidentally, 5,000 men, and I think it's Mark that clearly says, besides... Women and children. It's been estimated 10 to 15,000 people here he fed. would not be out of the you know, order here to imagine that. But when they gather back up after everybody's eaten their fill, they gather 12 baskets full of fragments, which again just impresses you this is a miracle. And it impresses the people that are there. It had its effects, and they were obvious. If you'll notice, and I'm going to pick up reading down in verse 14, and I'll look at this section, especially this next, oh, 15, 16 verses primarily here for a moment. The Bible tells us in verse 14, Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, This is of a truth, that prophet should come into the world. And what they're saying is, He's that prophet. A lot of people look back at what Moses had said, and I think that's probably right in Deuteronomy 18. I give you the law, but there's another one that's coming. A prophet, a lawgiver, you hear him. And so, a lot of folks will point to this and say that by the miracle, it confirmed to them that he was Moses' prophesied prophet. That may be so. It might be that when they say that prophet, they mean the Messiah. They knew the Messiah would come into the world. And they knew he would be the prophet and the lawgiver and the son of God and so forth. They may even mean him. Because it does seem to be that their focus is upon who will be key. But nonetheless, let's not miss the point in verse 14. They recognize it as a legitimate miracle. And a miracle confirms the word of a prophet. And so they're ready to listen to what he says because... He's performed a miracle. Understand the point. Search the scriptures. You think you have eternal life in them. They are they which testify of me. And Jesus went on to say, You won't believe them. You won't listen to what the word of God says. I know you already. Well, now he's done a miracle, and they're saying they're ready to listen. Now, as you go on here, and you look at verse 15, even though they rightfully concluded him to be a prophet by the miracle he'd done, let's read verse 15. When Jesus, therefore, perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into the mountain himself alone. So while they rightfully conclude he's a prophet by the miracle, they wrongfully have the motive of wanting to make him king, and we're going to see later why if we look down at verse 26. In this section, Jesus answered and said to them, Verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say unto you, you seek me. You are looking for me. Notice the the play against search the scriptures. You're looking for me, but not because you saw the miracles, or you're looking for me not because you saw the miracles, but also because you did eat of the things and you were filled. So it's not just that you saw the miracles and it confirmed that I'm a prophet and now you're ready to listen to the word of God coming from me. It's not just that. No, you saw the miracles, and you focused on the miracle itself, how I would have the power to feed you, and you're ready for me to be king. And that's not unlike people, is it? I mean, if we stop and think, we're in an election year, and when politicians stand up to speak, what people want to hear is, hey, what can you do for me? You know, what's in it for me? What have you got for me? What are you ready to give out to me? And then, you know, boy, if you're with me like that, then I'm with you. Well, Jesus said, you're looking for me for the same thing. You're looking for me, but not for something as high of an order as eternal life. Not because you see a miracle and that says to you, I'm a prophet and I've got the truth from God. But you're focused on bread. And that's the point. Jesus makes the point in this passage, if you'll notice as he goes on, and I'm in verse 27 here. Labor not for the meat which perishes." But for that meat which endures unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath God the Father sealed. Then they said unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? When you listen to the people and when you see what Jesus is saying, Jesus is saying to them, and it's understandable, we have to work for our daily food. Jesus said, Don't just work for that. But labor... For the spiritual food that endures. Notice the daily food perishes. We all know that. Even if you buy it at the store and put it in the best of refrigerators or freezers, it goes bad. But labor, work for spiritual food that endures to everlasting life. And yet, if you listen to them, and let's go on to verse 28 and 29, when he says, when they say, What shall we do that we might work the work? Jesus says in verse 29, this is the work of God. And I want you to listen to that carefully. This is the work of God that you believe on him whom he has sent. A lot of people today, when I was going to school, you know, the the theology that was taught there was salvation was not by works. And that faith was what saved a person. In fact, I would hear it misquoted by professors, I can't tell you how many times, justification by faith only, to which I would point out, the Bible never says justification by faith only. The word only is not there. Salvation by faith only. The Bible never says salvation by faith only. It always says by faith. But I would also point out to anyone who would listen, faith itself, belief itself, is a word. Oh, no, 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 they would say. No, things like baptism, that's a word. You know, going to church, all those other things, those are words. But faith is not a word. Well, Jesus said it is. But is it that hard to understand? Jesus is standing here in a crowd of people who have just seen a miracle. A miracle that is undeniable. A miracle that should make you immediately say, this guy is from God. And if he's from God, whatever he says, we better listen to that. But how hard was it for them to get past the bread? Get past the food. And think about spiritual things. Oh, belief is a work. Faith is a work. To have faith in God, no matter what, is a hard work. To have faith in God. just like we just finished singing a song that talked about frowns or tears. Those are the kinds of things that distract us, even detract us from serving God. Get us off course. Get us away from God. No, it's a hard work to believe in God. You think of your worst times in life. When either some crisis has hit and you're filled with doubt, some sin is prevalent in your life and you're so wrapped up in doing the sin, you're further and further away from God every day. The challenge that it is to believe God, the challenge that it is to hold to your faith, oh, it's a work. And in fact, it is a work that you have to work on all your life. The strongest of people will be filled at times with questions. The strongest, the most faithful of people will have to come back and work through it yet again. And know that it is the truth. And know what God said is the truth. This is the work of God, Jesus said. That you believe on him whom he has sent. And so Jesus threw that out there too. Especially when things are not the way you want them. And I ask you to look at this this story here. And maybe you agree with me, or maybe you do not agree with me. But to me, the undercurrent in this story... I mean, they wanted to force him to be king. They wanted to force him to be king because he could feed them. They had in their mind an idea of what he could be. They saw something. And when they saw Jesus take the little boy's lunch and feed the people... They turned it in their minds, in their hearts, to what could be done for them. And that's not unlike people. I mean, when you begin to look at people and how people approach religion, isn't it, you know, I'm going to find a church that I, you know, that can do the best for me, the most for me? I want, you know, I want a church. I want a religion. I want a God who can give me what I need, read what I need and what I want. And even isn't it in an individual's life that we get in our minds what we need, we get in our minds what we want, and we begin to expect God will give it to us, to make us happy, to bless us, because God loves us. And that's our view of things, that God will let this happen, or bring this into my life, or God will do this for me, or that for me. And when it doesn't go that way, how hard is it to believe? How do you begin to look at God then? To me, there's an undercurrent going on here where Jesus has got the multitudes, the crowds, but he's no politician. He is not going to play the crowd. He is not going to look to the crowd and say, oh, you want this? I can do that for you. Of course he could have done it. But what good would it have done them? How would it have saved them? It would have fed them, yes. But what good would it have done for them? So the undercurrent running through this story is Jesus has something to offer them. Everlasting life. It's not free. You don't get it for nothing. You have to work for it. Just like everything else in life that's worth anything. You've got to work for it. And it's not what they basically want. So as you notice as you go on in this story, immediately, once Jesus said, this is the work for you know, of God, this is what you need to be working for, Believing in the one God has sent, they start arguing. And that's not unlike people either. Immediately, they began to raise the point, verse 31. And I think that it echoes the undercurrent of they still want bread. And so they bring up the point, verse 31. Our fathers did eat manna in the desert, as written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And it's almost as if they're saying, well, you know, God gave the people bread before And you obviously have the power to give the bread, so why don't you give the bread? Let's read a couple of verses, this. starting in verse 32. And I'm going to read a little bit of a section here, several verses, not a long section, but let's listen to Jesus. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which comes down from heaven and gives life unto the world. That's obvious who he's speaking of. Well, then they answered him back, Lord, evermore, give us this bread. They're still hung up on bread. Notice that. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoa, did he just say what I think he just said? Yeah, he sure did. I am the bread of life. He that comes to me shall never hunger, and he that believes in me shall never thirst. But I said unto you that you also have seen me, and you don't believe. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and him that comes to me I will in no wise cast out. I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. Verse 39, and this is the Father's will who has sent me, that all which he has given me I shall lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. Jesus is still focusing on faith in him that ultimately endures. Life and they are still hung up on bread. Verse 40. This is the will of Him that sent me, that everyone that sees the Son and believes in Him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. And you know you repeat yourself when you want to really get a point across, and he's really getting this point across. Well, what effect do you think that has on them? How do you think they take, Do you think they get it? Yeah, they get it. No question about it. They get it. But what effect does it have? Well, look at verse 42. They said, well, verse 41. The Jews then complained at him, murmured at him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I came down from heaven? Now stop and think about that for a moment. I want you, and if you're in the habit of writing in your Bible or making some note, this one's easy. Because you kind of turn it around, verse 41, flip it around, go back to verse 14. Draw a line to it if you're in the habit of writing in your Bible. But I remind you again, verse 14. Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, This is of a truth, that prophet that should come into the world. That sounds great. And you're looking at that verse and you're thinking, well, that's wonderful. They get it. No, they don't. No, they're ready to give Him praise of being the prophet. But in their minds, they're like most human beings, what's in it for me. And they've already seen what's in it for them as far as they perceive, and that is a free lunch. And so when Jesus says in no uncertain terms, We're not talking about physical bread here. We're talking about spiritual food that endures to everlasting life. I am the bread of heaven. If you feed on me, if you buy into me, believe in me, if you work hard to do that, I can give you not bread every day for life, but I can give you everlasting life. No. We don't want that. And they're complaining about it. And then they began to malign him. And that's what you do. If you don't like what someone says and you don't have an answer to, it, how are you going to answer a miracle? How are you going to answer the truth that a prophet who's done a miracle to confirm it, how are you going to answer that from Scripture? How are you going to answer that with logic, with reason? You can't. So you do what most people do when something can't be answered. You make a personal attack. And that's exactly what they do. Who is this guy anyway? I mean, he's from Galilee. We're from Galilee. Who is this guy? We know his mom. We know his dad. They're nothing special. I mean, they really were, obviously, but they, you know, in their mind, they ain't nothing special. So who does this guy think he is? Well, if you heard yourself back in verse 14, who he thinks he is is exactly who you said he is. He's that prophet. And the miracle confirmed it. But No, they're still stuck on the bread. They're stuck on what they want. So as the Bible goes on here, and if you'll pick up reading with me in verse 43, we'll scan this next couple of verses quickly. But Jesus answered them back. Don't complain. Verse 44, no man has come to me except the Father who has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Notice he said that three times in about four verses here. It is written in the prophets that they shall be all taught of God. Search the scriptures. They testify of it. Every man, therefore, that that has heard and has learned of the Father comes to me. But not that any man has seen the Father, save he which is of God, he has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say unto you, he that believes on me has everlasting life. You get the point. He's going to hammer that again and again and again. I am that bread of life. Yes, your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness, But they're dead. They ate, they lived, they died. Was that the most important thing in their lives? No. There's no salvation in the man. It was mere food. But this is the bread that comes down from heaven that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Jesus is making this point again and again and again. And he's not backing up from it. And they're not hearing it. Not because they don't understand what he's saying. They don't want to hear it. And and if it were that verse 14 was not there and we did not see them respond to the miracle and acknowledge that a miracle means whatever the guy says, you better listen. If we hadn't seen that, we could say, oh, they're just confused. They don't know what's going on here. It's not that. It is that the message is not what they want to hear. It's kind of like when you or I Someone calls us, someone meets with us, someone sits down to talk to us, and they want salvation. They want things to be different in their life. And they begin to talk about, you know, my life is so messed up, or I need this change in my life. Or maybe they even begin to talk in spiritual terms. I want salvation, I want to go to heaven. And you're thinking to yourself, great. And so, you ask them, would you like to study? Yeah, yeah, whatever, you know, I'll listen to anything. They're not listening to anything, and they don't want to listen to anything. And you open up the Bible and you can see it in their face when you begin to talk like Jesus is talking. And they're saying to you loud and clear and clear through body language, I don't want that message. That is not what I want to hear. And you can talk all day long and you can reason in every way possible. You will not come close to doing as good a job as Jesus did right here. And you can stress the point of eternal life and how important it is over and over and over, but this individual is caught up in this thing in this life and that's all they care about. And that's all they're going to care about. And when you listen to this in John 6, Jesus will go on here. He won't stop. He won't back up from the message. He will teach them He is the bread of life. He will teach them again and again that He came down from heaven. He will begin to speak of things like you have to feed on me spiritually. Yes, your fathers ate manna physically. They lived and they died. But you have to feed on me, spiritually. You have to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. You've got to buy into me totally, and you've got to work to understand all that. And their ears are closed to it. We don't want to hear that. That is not what we want. If you go back, and I will veer away from John 6 for just a moment. Go back to John 1. Wes was teaching this on, on Thursday night. And he was talking about Jesus coming into the world and how he came to his own. And we came across this verse, and if you'll look with me at John 1 and verse 5, and I think this is interesting. You kind of follow along a progression here. Look at verse 5 when it says, The light shineth in darkness. This is the King James, of course. And the darkness, and the King James says, Comprehended it not. Well, that's right. But it's not what it literally says. It literally uses a term for Like we would say, when we don't understand something, we might say, I don't get it. And we can have all kinds of logic and even emotions behind that statement, but I don't get it. Well, the idea in this word of comprehend here is a word that literally means they did not take it in. And literally, it's a compound term that means they didn't take it all around. In other words, they didn't look at all sides of it and take it in. That's exactly what's going on in John 6. They saw a miracle. They focused on one thing. The miracle. Food. Free lunch. And they couldn't get off of it. But they didn't look at the God with the power and the message of the teacher. They didn't see any of that. They didn't want to hear any of that. He came into the world. He shined in the light. But, I mean, shined as the light in the darkness. But they just didn't take it in. Notice also here, if you're looking at John 1, down in verse 11, it gets more personal here. He came unto his own, and his own, notice the phrase, received him not. Now if you look in the original language, you don't have to know the original language to do it, you can see it. But if you look in the original language, it is the same basic word with a different preposition or a different uh, prefix is the word I'm looking for a different prefix, and here's what it means. He came into the world generally, and the world just generally didn't get it. They didn't look all around him, they didn't study everything about him, they didn't work to believe in him, so they didn't get it. But more than that, he came to his own. He came to the people who should get it. And the word here is very personal. They didn't get it, because they didn't Take it to themselves, personally. In other words, here's what they said in modern language. It's not just like the world would say, I don't get it. It is, I won't take it. And there's a big difference. I won't take that. I won't have that. I won't receive that. Because it's not what I want. Now go over with me, if you will, to chapter 6. And I want you to drop down to verse 60 and notice something interesting. I'm the bread of heaven. I've got the words of eternal life. Verse 60. Many therefore of his disciples, when they heard this, they said, "This is a hard saying. Who can hear it?" King James said. The word literally is our same root word from John 1. I don't get it. No, it wasn't that. I want to take it. The Jews were saying. Now the Jews are saying, "Boy, this is a tough teaching. Who can take that?" That's what they're literally saying. Who can take it? It's not for anybody. That I mean, this kind of teaching, this kind of idea. When you've got this kind of power, this kind of ability, when you can do this kind of thing for us, who can take this? You won't use your power. You won't do for us something we want. We say we need. But you want to come to us with this, I'm the bread of heaven, with everlasting life stuff? Who can take that? And The Bible tells you, verse 61, Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained that. He said unto them, does this offend you? In other words, does this make you stumble? What if you shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? That's not their idea either. They were going to force him to be king. The idea was a long, healthy reign on the throne, conquering the Romans, etc., etc. What if you see me dead, resurrected, and going into heaven? Notice as he goes on. It is the Spirit that gives life, and the flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak unto you, search the Scriptures, they testify of me. They are the words of eternal life. It's the words that I speak unto you. They are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you that do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not, and even who should betray him. And he said, Therefore said I unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given him of my Father. And from that time, notice, from that time, many of his disciples, people who had bought into the story, that were following him, that were students of him, that were sitting and listening to him. Well, now it comes to this crux of teaching, and they're saying, Man, who can take this? We're out of here. We're gone. They went back and they walked no more with him. And this is when Jesus, as anybody would, and he's human too, this is when Jesus looks at the twelve. Not just all of the disciples in general, but the twelve. And says to the twelve, will you also go away? Demas has forsaken me. Me, Paul says, personally. He loves this present world. These people forsook Jesus because they loved this present world. And that's all they loved. Truthfully. Will you go away also? And this is when Peter shines. Peter, who, remember, you're the rock, Peter. Me? The rock? Yeah, you're the rock. You're the rock because of moments like this. You cut right through. You stand for what you believe. You're the rock. I want you to be a fisherman of men. Me? I'm a sinful man. You just need to go away from me, Lord. There's, you know, I'm not good enough. Oh, yes, you are. Yes, you are. And I'm going to make of you. A fisherman of men. Peter answered him here. Lord, to whom shall we go? He can take it. And that's the difference in Peter. Do I think he understands everything here? He says, You have the words of eternal life. And a lot of people said, you know, he didn't have a clue about that. The Father just had to reveal that to him on the spot because he wouldn't have known that. Well, Jesus kept saying it over and over and over again. Peter was listening. You're saying you have the words of eternal life. I saw you feed everybody with that little boy's lunch. You, you got it. And, and do I understand it all? No. Does it go with everything I've heard since the time I was a little lad in synagogue? No, it doesn't. But where else do we go? If we leave somebody like you... Somebody with the power you have. Someone who does what you do. Someone who sees down deep inside of us like you see down deep inside of me. Who else would I go to? So to whom else do we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we believe and we are sure. Notice, they said they believed because of the miracle. Peter is saying we are sure that you have the words of eternal life. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus reminds them in verses 70 and 71. Yeah, and even one of you still doesn't get it. He won't pay. And ultimately, of course, Judas betrayed him. In a couple of minutes, if you've got your outlines, you may have a look on the back. And I'm not going to spend a great deal of time with all of this, but something that I do want to mention. We, as Christians loyalty to Jesus. I think about this story with Peter a lot of times when we're singing certain songs. And they're very challenging words. And I gave you three of them on here. Song number 303. I'll never forsake my Lord. And you read that and you think about what you're saying. And sometimes it's difficult for me. I sing that song and I think, yeah, but you have forsaken me. There have been plenty of times when you've not done what this song says. But it's a pledge to Jesus. I'll never forsake my Lord. I gave you some thoughts to think about. Maybe another song that we sing, Stand Up, Stand Up for Jesus, You Soldiers of the Cross. It's a very powerful, rousing song. And a lot of times the song leader would say, "Stand, Please stand while we sing this song. And if you think about yourself, you picture yourself, I'm standing here and I'm singing out to anybody in the world that will listen. I stand up for Jesus. Well, do I? do I in the hard moments like this, when, quote, unquote, everybody turns away, am I like Peter and say, no, I stand for Jesus. I'm with him. And finally the song, and it really gets me, I'll be a friend to Jesus. They tried, my Lord and Master. And I think about Peter. And I put this song in here because remember, when he was in the halls of Pilate and all of that, when he was going through that night of betrayal, that was not Peter's fine small. And maybe Peter was like a lot of us. Not me. You know, I'm not a Christian. I don't know it. And then he went so far as to curse and swear that he didn't know it. I'll be a friend to Jesus. And I loudly declare that in that song. No matter what. No matter if things go my way. Regardless of what other people do. Regardless of the circumstances of my life. I will be a friend very challenging. Maybe we need to think a little bit deeper. Maybe you do already. But some of us need to think a little bit deeper when we sing such songs as this. Are we truly like Peter in this story? You know, faithful Christians are subject to the same emotional turmoil that plagues other people. We're, We're human. We're like Peter. We go through doubt sometimes. Even despair sometimes over different situations. We struggle. And maybe it is that even someone sitting in this room is struggling to the point of just completely turning away. Jesus is not, the whole Christian idea of being a Christian is just not what I thought it was going to be. That's where these people were. They didn't think they were getting what they thought they were going to get. So they turned away. What I need to do at those moments is I need to ask myself, what am I really loyal to? Jesus and the truth? Or am I loyal to my preconceived idea of the way it was supposed to be? If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, you believe in Jesus, you want your life to be one that stands with the Lord, tonight if you're willing to confess that he's the Son of God, If you'll repent, be willing to change your life, if you'll be baptized to have your sins washed away, you will stand with Him. And maybe it is that you've been with Him, you've stood with Him, but now as you look at your life, you're not standing with Him. You're not closely following to Him. Your loyalty is not there. Tonight, you'd like to ask for us to pray together with you, and as we pray together, make a new commitment to do what you know you need. Why not you please come